Hello everyone, my name is Varak Ketsamanian and welcome to another episode of Society for Armenian Studies podcast. Our guest today is Professor Huri Berberian, who is a professor of history, Mehruni Family Presidential Chair in Armenian Studies and Director of the Armenian Studies Program at the University of California, Irvine. She is the author of a number of articles on Armenians and revolution, Armenian women and identity, and two books, the first being Armenians and the Iranian Constitutional Revolution from 1905 to 1911, The Love of, for Freedom Has No Fatherland, published by UC Press in 2001, and most recently, Roving Revolutionaries, Armenians and Connected Revolutions in the Russian, Iranian, and Ottoman Worlds, published again by UC Press in 2019. So this book is what we're going to discuss today. So first of all, welcome, Professor Berberian. Thank you very much. I just want to point out, though, that the first book was published by Westview and not UC Press. Okay, that's, that's <laughs> my bad. Sorry. It's okay, just so people don't think we're misrepresenting. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Sure. Okay, so uh, how did you come up with the idea of the second book? Is this a continuation of the first project, or that kind of diverges in different ways? It's, it, I suppose it's both a continuation and a departure. So uh, obviously with the first book, uh, I was fascinated with these revolutionaries. Uh, but the first book was focused mostly on the Armenians and the Iranian constitutional revolution. Mm -hmm. But in some indirect way, it also addressed connections and crossings in these uh, frontier empires, the Russian, the Ottoman, and the Iranian. Um, so that was the beginning, uh, and I continued to develop my interest in early 20th century revolutions and revolutionaries, uh, and really delved into world history in my teaching, actually. So in a sense, I came to this through my teaching, and I was introduced to the idea of connected histories uh, by uh, actually Sebu Aslanyan, um, and so... The graduate seminar I taught on comparative and connected revolutions in 2012 really sort of uh, drove me to consider these revolutions and revolutionaries in the larger, broader regional and global context. Uh, and so the possibilities of interconnections uh, came up um, over and over again, and, and it seemed like the most appropriate and meaningful way to talk about these revolutions and the revolutionaries that took uh, mm -hmm. part in them. Mm -hmm. So so you mentioned com com comparative or connected history as being one of the fundamental approaches you take in this book, so whereby you kind of interweave the three different revolutions in Iran, the Ottoman territories, and the Russian Empire. Why do you think they have not been studied in, in connection or in comparison before? Well, the, that's a very good question. I mean, they have, on, in some level, been studied in comparison, but certainly not in connection. Mm -hmm. So the usual way in which, or the conventional way that this, these revolutions have been studied uh, is in a rather insular fashion. So basically producing scholarship on each revolution, treating each revolution in isolation from the uh, others, with perhaps now and then mentioning the fact that uh, something else was happening in the regional, uh, in in the uh, in a neighboring region. 
to some extent, I think this approach uh, emanates from the conventional concerns of national history and area studies mm -hmm. uh, that basically privilege the study uh, of the history of nation states. And they do this at the expense of exploring shared histories, uh, common histories with other states or societies or peoples. And I think this has been the dominant form of study until recently. Uh, we do have um, comparative approaches to these revolutions. Uh, two that come to mind are Charles Kurzman's study, mm -hmm. which compares the 20th century democratic revolutions that include the Russian, Iranian, and Ottoman, but also Portuguese, Mexican, uh, and, and Chinese. And the other one is Nader Sohrabi, who also does a comparative history. In an article, he compares all three, but in his book, he compares just the Iranian and the Young Turk Revolution. Uh, but here, too, just, you know, both Kurzman and Sohrabi are doing a comparison. They're not really doing a connected history. Um, and Sohrabi takes the Young Turk Revolution as the normative entity against which Iran is compared. So mm -hmm. it's, it's almost not even an equal comparison. It's a great book, but nevertheless. What he offers that's different is that he takes a local, regional, and global approach, which is uh, actually quite, uh, quite good. Um, so the application of a connected histories approach is, I think, rather new in scholarship. Uh, we can trace its origins, uh, I suppose, to Joseph Fletcher's work, more recently, uh, Sanjay Subramanyam. Um, but it's become more popular, uh, so to speak, in academic circles, and I believe that's part of a, an increasing interest in world history and transnational studies. Mm -hmm. So I guess I can't but help asking, uh, when you're talking about connected history, you're talking about actors who kind of crisscross into the different borders. So maybe just a, just a quick methodological question. How did you choose which actors were you focusing on? Of course, the sources dictate pretty much what you can or who you can focus on, but how, how was the selection process? And maybe to just kind of connect this to the third question, what was the place and role of these Armenian revolutionaries, whether they were male or female, in these various uh -huh. revolutions? Yeah, um, the way I chose these uh, historical actors was by looking at basically uh, who was participating mm -hmm. uh, in all three revolutions. And the uh, political party that uh, keep, kept coming up, obviously, was the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, the Tashnak uh, It also uh, conveniently has the uh, most uh, rich... Uh, treasure trove of archival material, unlike the Hanchagyan party. Uh, so it was both a, a practical uh, and a necessary uh, choice on my part. Um, in terms of the Armenian revolutionaries and their role, both male and female, we're obviously talking about more men than women, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, the They took part in all three revolutions, um, the role they played uh, was uh, different from one to the other. Uh, in the Russian Revolution, for example, it was uh, limited to strikes uh, in the South Caucasus. Uh, they collaborated with Russian revolutionaries as well as Georgians and Muslim workers. Uh, they were inspired in many ways by ideology, socialist and populist uh, uh, ideology. Uh, but they were also... Uh, 
participating in the Russian Revolution because of practical reasons. Mm -hmm. They were really sort of shocked into nationalist revolutionary activity in the South Caucasus by the Russian seizure of Armenian church properties in 1903. Uh, and um, I think that helped them bring the South Caucasus into their struggle where they began to call for the overthrow of the Tsar, where before they were really focused on the Ottoman Empire. Uh, another aspect that helped them make the decision to participate were the violent clashes between Caucasian Armenians and Azeris in 1905 and 1906, and it made them rethink uh, coexistence. So how how can these uh, how can we get rid of ethnic anta antagonism uh, and live happily ever after, so to speak? Mm -hmm. In the Young Turk Revolution, there's really no direct role. Uh, but there is active collaboration with the Young Turk leadership prior to the revolution. Uh, of course, alliances uh, of some elements of the burgeoning Young Turk movement uh, and the ARF led uh, between 1905 and 1907 to uprisings and revolutionary activities in Eastern Asia Minor that some historians of the, uh, of the Ottoman Empire consider a very sort of important chapter in the history of the Young Turk movement. Mm -hmm. They participated in the congresses with, with Young Turks in Paris, uh, calling for the abdication of Sultan Abdul Hamid by whatever means possible and so forth. But they didn't take part in the actual July 1908 uh, revolution that you know brought in the constitution, reinstated the constitution again. But they continued to collaborate uh, with the with the Young Turks. So the, Specifically, of course, the ARF, uh, and it was this—it was the decision of the ARF to help uh, to um, to seize military operations against the Ottoman government, along with the Hunchagian Party, that actually opened it up, opened both of them up to concentrate their efforts to outside of the Ottoman Empire for the first time, and specifically in Iran. And despite the fact that Armenians in the uh, in Iran were the smallest of the populations uh, in these three empires in terms of Armenian populations. I mean, they were about, you know, a little bit, perhaps over 70,000 compared to the uh, one or two or whatever million in the Russian and the Ottoman empires. Uh, but despite their numbers, they were most successful and had the most significant contribution uh, in Iran. Um, and they had an agreement with the specifically the ARF had an agreement with the Iranian constitutionalists uh, to collaborate uh, to contribute military force. The Hanchagians uh, contributed ideologically. Uh, they also took part in military activities. Uh, then there were individual Armenian social democrats who helped form uh, the Democrat Party in 1909. Uh, there was an organization of social democrats with the Armenians. So there were a number of things that were very different from the Russian and the Young Turk uh, case. And, of course, you have Armenian fighters under the command of Yeprem Khan and Keri, Keri and Nigol Tuman mm -hmm. uh, providing critical military assistance from 1908 to 1912. So uh, the participation in the Iranian revolution obviously uh, was uh, tremendous compared to the other Okay, so when we're, uh, yeah. in terms of women, uh, yeah, was that was yeah, that where yeah, you're yes, going? Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. So in terms of women, we 
obviously Armenian women took part in the propagation of ideas. They took part in transfer of arms. They took part in distributing bullets during fighting. They even took part in actual fighting. But they did not circulate with the frequency or liberty liberty that the, the men did. And that's why they don't uh, have a huge role in the book. Their home served the larger circuit, circulatory network, so they became like safe houses for roving activists, for weapons, for print passing through. Uh, so in that sense, they were, in, uh, they were very much involved in the revolution, but in a very different way and not to the same degree. Okay. Uh, well, I was just going to ask, when we're talking about military success and revolutions, we're talking about states here and the three different states, three very different states mm -hmm. here. So what was the relationship of the Armenian revolutionaries vis-à-vis uh, -vis the different states, whether it's in Iran, Russia, or the Ottoman Empire? And how did that change throughout time or throughout the revolution itself? Yeah, for, for, for a very long time, the Ottoman Empire was the number one enemy of these Armenian revolutionaries. And then the, uh, starting in 1905 or so, uh, especially because of the, church co the confiscation of church properties, the Russian Empire became sort of a secondary enemy, a target. Uh, and Iran wasn't really uh, in the picture in terms of um, in terms of its direct relationship to the Armenian population because it wasn't repressive or uh, its repression wasn't as impactful, let's say, as it was in the case of the uh, Ottoman and Russian uh, states. And the way that these states actually... Uh, uh, in, uh, engaged with the revolutionaries uh, was quite similar, especially in the case of the Ottoman and Russian states. Revolutionaries were unwelcome. They were obviously arrested and tried. They were imprisoned, ex uh, executed. There were trials, uh, or they were executed before trials. But Iran here is also unique and different. Um, you take, for example, somebody like Yeprem Khan, a member of the ARF, a revolutionary, a military leader in the struggle against anti-constitutionalist mm -hmm. forces. He becomes chief of police mm -hmm. uh, uh, during and after the revolution. So it's quite unique in light of the persecution and prosecution that you see of revolutionaries in the Ottoman and Russian cases. But for the Ottoman and Russian cases, we know that the two states or the two empires were traditional enemies, but do we see any kind of cooperation or collaboration when it comes to kind of persecuting the revolutionaries or strengthening the border patrols? Do we see any kind of state-to-state uh, -state measures for co cooperation on this matter? That's, that's actually an excellent question. It's not one that I uh, pursued. Mm -hmm. um, I... In sort of thinking back, um, I don't know of any particular circumstances where that happened, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that it didn't. It just means that it's something that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. uh, I do know that the Russians were very concerned about the uh, cross, sort of the, the crossings in the between the imperial frontiers, and even though the major target of these Armenian revolutionaries were the Ottoman uh, authorities. Uh, the Russians began to feel very threatened uh, and uh, nervous about what was happening. 
Uh, and the work that's been done by uh, Stephen uh, Rigg uh, is is important in this regard because he, he I think it's he who talks about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not, Bonol, um, I think, uh, is the other guy. I'm sorry, I, I'm forgetting his first name. I apologize. <laughs> so just to give him some tangible examples, what were the materials, maybe like weapons or some of the ideas that circulated along these imperial mm-hmm. borders? And can you just give us a few examples just to give us an idea of what these people were dealing with? Yeah, so um, the evidence points to the circulation of a number of things. Uh, obviously, weapons like firearms, uh, bullets, munitions, basically, but also explosive materials. For example, uh, pota- uh, potassium chloride was being moved uh, in order to be uh, from Europe, even in order to be used uh, in the Ottoman Empire, or melanite uh, in the uh, assassination attempt against the against Sultan Abdul Hamid II. So we do have evidence of that. In addition, print is moving, uh, mm-hmm. specifically newspapers, but also pamphlets and books and so forth. Um, and what I found uh, particularly interesting was the circulation of passports. Uh, and these are fake passports. So, for example, Christopo Mikhailian is traveling as Samuel Fine uh, mm-hmm. for a long time, a Jewish merchant, uh, in order to get uh, stuff done. And passports are being uh, uh, circulated through individuals, but also being sent uh, by postal mail. Uh, and all of this, whether it's arms or explosive materials or print, uh, is basically circulating because of the new technologies of steamship, railway, uh, and the railway, but also the old ones like sailboats and motorboats. So they're basically using whatever possible means they can to get these things across. Even uh, postal service uh, uh, telegraph to spread news, although that's not an object, um, as for ideas, um, the main ideas being circulated were constitutionalism, uh, socialism, uh, uh, anarchism, particularly uh, anarchist interpretations of autonomy, decentralization, uh, federation. All of these things very much inspired our revolutionaries. And they took whatever they wanted out of them, uh, sort of blended them together. Uh, in an old Vitamix uh, and uh, basically uh, uh, came up with their own brand of these ideas that suited their own interests, that suited their own uh, reality. Uh, And these ideas were circulating across borders, not only through newspapers and the telegraph, but also basically by personal and professional encounters and exchanges, whether it was between revolutionaries or revolutionaries and European uh, thinkers mm-hmm. well, one of, and, Rus- one, and Russian, sorry. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I was thinking about while I was reading the book is the fact that when we read the term revolutionary, we usually take it for granted that they were actually real revolutionaries. So how do you, how do you distinguish between who a revolutionary was or who wasn't? I mean, how do you methodologically distinguish between the two, or if there's any distinction in your case? I mean, who do you consider a revolutionary in this case? Yeah, I use the term rather uh, generally, Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that anyone who participated in one form 
or another in these uh, revolutions becomes a revolutionary. So it doesn't have to be someone who's taking up arms. It could be a revolutionary uh, intellectual. It could be a revolutionary uh, that that is working mostly uh, on a political level. Uh, and uh, to some extent, it's basically anybody who considers himself or herself a revolutionary or is thought to be a revolutionary by the state. So mm -hmm. it's a very... I mean, it's a very open-ended, uh, and I don't try to define revolutionary, um, which may be a problem, but it didn't seem to be a problem in this case. Uh, but I suppose it depends what you're doing uh, with with that definition. And finally, just to have a few words on the sources themselves. So you use and integrate many sources, mostly in Armenian, and also in different languages. So what were the main challenges working with these Armenian materials, and what were the main sources that you utilized yeah. for the book? Uh, I relied uh, on two sets of sources, uh, mostly. One was the uh, almost untapped Armenian language, unpublished and published documents of the ARF, mm -hmm. the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, uh, which is actually... Uh, Although it's limited, uh, it actually is not limited because it, it was the dominant Armenian political party that was crossing the figurative and literal frontiers of the Russian Ottoman Iranian states. And it was the only party that participated to one degree or another in these three revolutions. In addition to that, within the archives, you find not only material that has to do with just the ARF, but also the Chagyan party. Mm -hmm. uh, and and others. So in that sense, it's a, it's a perfectly transnational uh, uh, archive. Uh, most of the documentation is in Armenian, uh, but you also find French and Persian and Russian and Ottoman Turkish. You find correspondence. You find minutes of meetings, circulars, all kinds of things. Um, and they cover a wide global network. Mm -hmm. uh, basically anywhere that the ARF has a presence, uh, and, uh, and that is also uh, uh, very helpful. Um, I also utilized for the first time in a systematic way more than two dozen contemporary Armenian language periodicals from major cities and centers of political activity in the South Caucasus, the M uh, Ottoman Empire, Iran, uh, and, and Europe. Uh, and these are, some of them are uh, party organs, uh, others are just party papers, not quite uh, organs, and there are some that are actually uh, independent, like independent Armenian social democratic uh, pace, papers. Um, in terms of sort of issues or challenges, mm -hmm. uh, the sources are, for example, are not very forthcoming in certain areas. Uh, in particular regarding women revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps that's understandable given the time period, the patriarchal social norms and so forth, but it's quite frustrating uh, because we know they, uh, they participated on some level, even if not to the level that uh, men did. Uh, so that, that's, that was quite frustrating. Um, there's also the problem of access. Uh, until recently, access to the ARF archives for most scholars was, a, was an issue. I mean, they were not granted uh, access. But fortunately, 
that is no longer the case. And I think that's a, that's a huge uh, change, a very important one and a welcome one. Uh, and it's going to open up a lot of avenues that were uh, closed uh, beforehand. Uh, it does, however, still need cataloging for the material in the archives. Uh, and it requires a great deal more attention and resources, uh, which means it requires money. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see someone donate <laughs> that money because it really is a amazing, amazing uh, source. I mean, it's cataloged up to, I think, 1925. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much material after that. And even the cataloging up to 1925 is not professionally done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have like, Rostom to Christopher. Okay, well, <laughs> okay, we know it's a letter, but <laughs> yeah, you have no idea of, of what the content mm-hmm. is and so forth. So if someone, if you know of anyone, <laughs> if anyone's listening to this would like to donate, it's a great cause. <laughs> it'll, it'll really open up scholarship and make Armenian history uh, even more uh, rich uh, than it is now. Well, on that positive note, thank you again, Professor Berberian, for this wonderful podcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Society for Armenian Studies podcast.